Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like garlic, hat stands, and the girl's name, Mavis. Oh, I love that. It reminds me of Willow the Wisp and Mavis Cruet, the sort of slightly rotund fairy uh, in <laughs> the that. The history it's of names is fun. The history of names would be very good, but I think we should try the history of Mavis, or Box... Pox and Goldilocks, Socks, Locks and Hollyhocks. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of friendship is in fact all about cycling, diaries, letters, emotions, bereavement, love, Francis Bacon, Cicero, politics, penal laws, Ireland and Catholicism. Or that the history of slime is in fact all about the Industrial Revolution. That was one of our lockdown homeschooling episodes, which I loved dearly. Yes, I'm, I'm, yeah, I've got, got more plans for them, actually. James, I'll talk to you about that later. Excellent. Um, we're all wondering who's doing the speaking. The man not sitting opposite me because we're in lockdown, we're recording over Zoom, he is the Archangel of History itself. Gabriel, Michael and Raphael all rolled into one in a tumbling ball of historical feathers. He is the winged professor extraordinaire of early modern British history at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Do you know, this is very odd because the man not sitting opposite me, because we're social distancing in these grimmest days of lockdown. Well, let's just say if he were a historical angel, he'd only be the Archangel Gabriel himself bringing glad tidings to the land. Oh, no. uh, two angels uh, talking to each other. The same angel talking to it. I imagine angels could do that. But yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, nice to be there. Uh, James, thank you for the introduction. We're not actually doing angels, though it might sound like it. We're doing wings. It's a bit more interesting than angels. But nonetheless, angels are definitely a part of it. And we chose wings because we are approaching Christmas and we wanted to start doing some um, Christmas themes. Um, longer, proper podcasts, and not just our micro-histories, which we will still continue to do. Uh, these are our lengthier ones. Uh, we're doing wings today. Um, other ones, James, I've got jotted down. We're going to do reindeer next. Um, I quite want to do wisdom or wise men. And uh, we will do one on birth. Uh, so you'll have an episode Ooh. on birth for Christmas Day, or maybe Christmas Eve, something like that. Uh, nonetheless, today it is wings. And um, what, what, where should we start, James? Maybe with a bit of angels to get everyone a in bit the, of Christmas, the Christmas mood. And I, I was inspired, not just simply because it's Christmas time, but I was inspired by an amazing sculpture 
that I saw. I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast uh, because a really good friend of mine, uh, Joe, who's a filmmaker, uh, was doing a video for Topsham and for Topsham Community. And he was doing a promo video for the town opening up as part of their Christmas season. And it's very important in these tough times that we should support our, our local communities. But he videoed this amazing sculpture of an angel that had been built out of driftwood. You'll love this, Sam. Mm, uh, a chap called uh, Brendan Rawlings, who's an artist, uh, local artist uh, in Devon, uh, did a produced a massive 12-foot Angel of the South sculptor, which is basically, imagine this a sort of really ripped angel um, with a six-pack, you know, sprinting with wings, of course, importantly, wings out behind him, totally in white, was on Topsham Quay uh, and was filmed uh, and now is in the churchyard. So it's there in St Margaret's Church uh, for everyone to see during the Christmas period. I went down... Uh, is he, is he with sprinting Joe. with a six-pack of beer? <laughs> no, a six-pack of, six of muscles oh, okay, in, his, in his stomach. <laughs> Um, so I went down, met up with Joe, and it's socially distanced, of course, and went down to have a look at it. And it is terrific. And I took a little film of it uh, myself, which I should, we should be popping on social media so that everyone can see it. Um, Brendan, uh, who's the creator and artist, works for Zenwood Design and has been producing sculptures of angels over the last few years. There was a, one that he did in on Exmouth Beach, uh, of a, a six-foot crouching male angel. Um, and when he was interviewed about this, uh, he said that my interest in angels began when I saw a painting of an angel about ten years ago and loved it. I painted a version of it and it just popped in my head one night that an angel would look amazing in driftwood. It's, I started it off without a plan and it turned out really well. An angel symbolises so many things, including strength, protection and losing a loved one. Um, and it, it seems that people have people have loved this and it really is quite striking. Uh, and if you have a look at their website, uh, Zen Wood Design, uh, this sculpture can be yours for a mere Eighteen and a half thousand pounds. Wow. It is an enormous sculpture, but it, he did it. He did it using bits of driftwood from Devon and Cornwall, and it took about a week to produce. And it's mm. enormous. But anyway, this was sort of what got me thinking about this. And then, of course, uh, angels uh, with wings. Angels are, of course, connected to not just Christmas trees. They bedeck our Christmas trees, but also they're very much part of the Christmas story. And I have a little biblical reading here for you. There were shepherds in the same country, staying in the field and keeping watch by night over their flock. And look... An angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I bring good news of great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This is the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was that suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill toward mankind 
And it happened that when the angels went away from them into the sky, the shepherds said one to the other, Let us go to Bethlehem now and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They came with haste and found both Mary and Joseph, and the baby was lying in the feeding trough, or manger as we know it. Uh, when they saw it, they made known the saying which was spoken to them about this child. All who heard it wondered at the things that were spoken to them by the shepherds, but Mary kept all sayings, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all things that had been heard and seen just as it was told to them. So the angel, as a, which literally means messenger, is very prominent in the Christmas story. We've seen it appearing to Mary to announce the birth of Christ, uh, appearing to, Ain to Joseph as well, telling him that, um, that Mary was, was pregnant from, were conceived by the Holy Spirit. Um, and the angel also appears to uh, the shepherds to announce the birth of Christ. Now, you may think that sort of angels are these sort of cute little feminine figures that betop trees. Uh, they are in a sort of figurative sort of uh, commercial sense. But also, in if you have a look at how they're represented in the Bible, we know certain things about them. They are beings of awesome strength. So in Psalm 103, verse 20, it refers to angels as mighty ones who do God's biddings. And elsewhere in Kings, we hear that a single angel killed over 185,000 soldiers all at once. There's also a sense in which the, at the time of Christ, a belief that guardian angels were 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 you know, were were around, and this was a prevalent belief among the Jewish people. Um, we one of the questions, though, that we have, and particularly because we're we're thinking about this in co the context of wings, is how do we actually know what angels look like? What is the evidence for it? Because you see them as their messengers, and you see them often represented in art with wings, and this is probably figurative because. They are swift messengers, and how else would one travel, you know, but without wings, if you travel sort of speedily over great distances. But actually, we don't know that much about what they actually looked like. You know, they did not ha necessarily have, they were spiritual beings and do not necessarily have, you know, physical bodies, although they can assume human form. Uh, and the Bible describes them uh, as dressed in white, gleaming like lightning, wearing clean shining linen with gold sashes around them, but very little mention of wings. The only classes of angels that are thought to have had wings were those that guarded and attended the throne of Christ, so seraphim and cherubim, um, and those are the only angels that have um, that actually have wings. So there we are, Sam, a little starter, start of a 10 for you. I, I like that because I'm going to talk about William Blake actually coming up with his depictions oh. of angels and he depicts several without wings, hmm. uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, I, I, the point, actually, there's a really important historical point here that there are even angels at all in the Christian tradition. It was actually established in the Middle Ages that the worship and veneration of any of the other 
archangels mentioned by the Bible, apart from Michael, Gabriel and Raphael, was forbidden. And that's interesting and important because it tells us that in the past, um, in the early church, certainly great efforts were made to prevent the worship of angels, the cult of angels. This was something that had existed before. Uh, it had been influenced by um earlier practices, pagan traditions of divine messengers. And the early church was very concerned that worshipping uh, worshiping angels would lead to a form of idolatry. So what are these um, pre-Christian, pre-Islamic traditions that, that worship angels? Well, one of them is Yazdanism. It's the cult of angels is another thing it was called. Um, and it's pre-Islamic as a native religion of the Kurds. And it's actually similar in style to Zoroastrianism, which was a fascinating religion I came across on my Silk Road trip to Iran. Um, and interestingly, the, um, the, 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 the sort of most famous iconic image of Zoroastrianism um, includes, includes wings. So the, the the controlling of um, the existence of angels in the Christian tradition is part of a broader history of Christianity um, and, and the way that Christianity controlled paganism, persecuting pagans, absorbing pre-existing religions into its own. And, um, you know, that relationship between Christianity as a new religion and pre-existing uh, pagan religions, as it was known, as they were known at the time, is fascinating. Um they didn't necessarily, I think, always think of these pagan religions as a bad thing, but rather as something that, that was sort of that was worth remembering, acknowledging and appreciating something that uh, that was in the past, that was what their ancestors had done. Um, there are obviously uh, links to Christmas with this. So if you think about the Christmas tree, and you claim that's a, uh, we can say it's a 17th century German invention, but that itself derives from a pagan practice of bringing greenery indoors to decorate in midwinter and you know even having a celebration in the darkest days uh, is is a pagan tradition it's all to do with the winter solstice it's a period when everyone needs a bit of cheering up it's dark um, needs a bit of lighting up with feasts and decorations and so yes we do celebrate Christmas in the middle of in the middle of winter but do remember that the bible doesn't give us any actual reference to when Jesus was born there you are James so um for me that little story of wings is actually all about Christianity absorbing pre-existing Ooh, religions. Love it. Well, let me pick up that story of Christianity uh, uh, because some very interesting things happened to angels uh, during the uh, Reformation period and, and post-Reformation period. Uh, and there's a brilliant book called Angels in the Early Modern World that came out a few years ago with Cambridge University Press, uh, written uh, by two marvellous historians of the Reformation, uh, Peter Marshall uh, and Alexandra Walsham. Um, uh, And and what's fascinating about their work uh, is the way in which they show the way that during the Reformation... um, Angels fell out of popularity with the reformers, very similar to what you were you were talking about with the sort of um, with the early church and and the and what was happening in the medieval world, you know, because these figures were seen as superstitious, you know, rather like, um, you know, rather like the sort of saints were were sort of um, viewed with hostility uh, by reformers. So too were were angels. And you have the the Bible is is reworked to remove the Book of Tobit uh, from it, which is the only biblical references to the angel Gabriel, and also references to angels are dropped from 
Church of England burial services in the Books of Common Prayer of 1549, 1552 and 1559. Also, the concept of guardian angels is criticised by reformers. You know, people like uh, Calvin, people like Martin Luther. Um, and so, you know, it's something that um, we're seeing removed. Uh, James I, uh, in his... 1597 uh, writing uh, on demonology uh, wrote uh, since the coming of Christ in the flesh and establishing of the church by the apostles all miracles visions prophecies and appearances of angels or good sprites spirits are ceased so we've got that sort of 16th century sort of falling out of love with, with angels but then what's fascinating is the way in which they do start growing in popularity again. Um, and some of this has to do with what is happening theologically around concepts of purgatory. Uh, and the, this is the idea of, of you know, the idea of, um, of purgatory being a sort of clearinghouse where souls would go to be judged and then you would either go to heaven or hell. Um, and some of it is, some of it, what you find is that there are sort of the church worries about that the church bans purgatory and it worries about the sort of idea of ghosts and spirits uh and you know and folk beliefs about fairies and actually what you tend to find is that angels uh are crop up in those places even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...is to explain those kind of phenomena. Um... And so, for example, uh, in 1572, one of the sort of leading uh, Protestant uh, authorities on, on ghosts um, is a guy called Ludwig Lavater. And he writes that spirits were not the souls of dead men, but either good or evil angels. And also, when we look at the when we look at the sort of post-Reformation world, when you think about miracles um, miracles are often very rare during that period. But as this book shows, they become assigned to angels. So they are res the responsibility of angels. So, for example, in 1641, uh, there is a, a miracle of bringing buttermilk to a starving child of a Protestant minister um, and in, in Ireland. Um, but also, the other big thing is that angels, as Peter Marshall shows, are associated with the Protestant deathbed. Um, and so they, we can see this in, in Shakespeare, uh, for example. Um, uh, it's used in the deathbed at Hamlet. Um, so Horatio's um, valediction for his deceased friend Hamlet Good night, sweet prince, and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Um, and we can also see it in in the Protestant thinker 
Robert Hill's writing, where he encouraged people who were dying to think that the angels stand at your bed's head to carry your soul into Abraham's bosom. So there we are. We see a sort of really interesting relationship with angels there. And I would encourage you, if you want to find out more, go and read Peter Marshall and Alexandra Walsham's brilliant book, Angels in the Early Modern World. Very good. I love the fact that the the, the story of these winged creatures um it becomes strong, disappears again, and then becomes, you know, it rises and it falls and it rises and it falls throughout history. So it's not like angels were a, a permanent fixture, James, in history, uh, and actually that their popularity waned. Um, which leads me on, quite interestingly, to peregrine falcons. Mm. <laughs> more, more winged creatures. Um, I, I got thinking about this. Uh, I went for a bike ride the other day and I saw a... Um, a murder of crows is the first time I've ever actually been able to use that term. A murder of crows attacking a buzzard. Um, the crows are obviously going for the eggs or the chicks or something. I'm not entirely sure. But there was um, uh, a, a bit of a battle, a bit of aerial combat in the sky. And uh, it made me think about... The, I was just interested that there was a buzzard. And I had a quick look around. and There weren't any red kites or peregrine falcons. So there, there's, there is... My point is there is a fascinating human history of the presence of birds of prey in our sky. And rather like angels, James, it rises and falls. Um, falcons are really interesting. They're, they're, I, I learnt this on a, uh, a show to a, a birds of prey show with my kids. Uh, but peregrine falcons are the only uh, one of the few birds that attack other birds in flight. Um, and... What's important about them is that the way that their numbers have changed dramatically over time and that how that has been influenced by humanity and particularly how their numbers fell after the Second World War. This matters because of the extraordinary success of the peregrine falcon as a predator. It's one of the most successful predators in history. And in terms of transcontinental range, it's probably exceeded only by two things. You'd like this, James. One of them is the red fox and the other one is humans. Oh, very so, good. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Very well-established, very successful predator. But then its numbers start massively falling after the Second World War. And this is all because of something called DDT. It's an insecticide, uh, which was first synthesised in 1874 by a chemist called Ottmar Zaidler. But it wasn't actually used as an insecticide until 1939, when its, uh, its effectiveness was identified by a Swiss chemist, Paul Hermann Müller. Now, it was started to be used in the aftermath, or towards the second half of the Second World War, and then very much so in its aftermath, as a way of limiting the spread of insect-borne diseases. A bit relevant to the present day, the fear of spreading diseases. You think about the Second World War, the enormous amounts of huge moving populations, and they were all getting sick, and they were all getting sick because of insect-borne diseases like malaria and typhus. So a huge threat to civilians and also to troops this unique period of human movement. So they started killing insects with this stuff called DDT. It was known in 1946 that it was going to be um, really, really bad for the environment. This is a quote uh, from a conservation society. Perhaps the greatest danger from DDT is that its extensive use in farm areas is most likely to upset the natural balances, not only killing beneficial insects in great number, but by bringing about the death of fish 
birds and other forms of wildlife either by their feeding on insects killed by DDT or directly by ingesting the poison. And it does exactly that. They know it's happening in the, in, uh, the 40s. They know it's what's going to happen and they carry on using it. So they carry on using it to the extent that peregrine falcons nearly become extinct. It's not till the 70s that it's actually banned and people start setting up um, captive rearing programmes for peregrine falcons and also other birds affected by DDT. And they start releasing falcons back into nature. Peregrine falcons, interestingly, when you say back into nature, they actually release them into cities primarily because cities are perfect for peregrine falcons. They've got all those nice high rises, um, you know, places like Manhattan and Chicago and London as well. Those nice high rises where they can see other birds that they can swoop down on and attack. So um, a lot of them are in cities. Interesting. Anyway, the point is, is that it's a really, really successful program. It's one of one of the the, the most successful um, programs of the 20th century in terms of uh, coping with a th- an endangered threat. Uh, and in just before uh, 2000, 1999, the peregrine falcons actually removed from the endangered species list in the US. But all of this allows me to talk about one of my favourite books. It's called The Peregrine. It's by a guy called J.A. Baker, and it was written in the late 1960s. Um, it's widely considered one of the best nature books in English written in the 20th century. And in fact, you can argue that it's one of the best literary creations of any type in the 20th century. And if none of you have read it, you all need to immediately go out and buy The Peregrine by J.A. Baker. Um, What he does is he details his observation of peregrines uh, near his home in Chelmsford in Essex over a single winter, 1962-1963. And you can see just how obsessed he is with the birds. But the point about this is, is it's before this 1970s successful conservation programme. So it's at a time of intense anxiety and fear that the peregrines were disappearing and would never be seen again. There's a there's an incredible sense of environmental and I- immediate environmental crisis as these uh, as this book was being written. I'm just going to read out a bit here from when he sees his first peregrine, because it's just magical. I saw my first peregrine on a December day at the estuary ten years ago. The sun reddened out of the white river mist, fields glittered with rime, boats were encrusted with it. Only the gently lapping water moved freely and shone. I went along the high river wall towards the sea. The stiff, crackling white grass became limp and wet as the sun rose through a clear sky into dazzling mist. Frost stayed all day in a shaded places. The sun was warm. There was no wind. I rested at the foot of the wall and watched Dunlin feeding at the tide line. Suddenly they flew upstream and hundreds of finches fluttered overhead, whirling away with a hur of desperate wings. Too slowly it came to me that something was happening which I ought not to miss. I scrambled up and saw that the stunted hawthorns on the inland slope of the wall were full of field fares. Their sharp bills pointed to the northeast and they clacked and spluttered in alarm. I followed their point and saw a falcon flying towards me. It veered to the right and passed inland. It was like a kestrel but bigger and yellower, with a more bullet-shaped head, longer wings and a greater zest and buoyancy of flight. It did not glide till it saw starlings feeding in stubble and then it swept down and was hidden among them as they rose. A minute later it rushed overhead and was gone in a breath into the sunlit mist. It was flying much higher than before, flinging and darting forwards with its sharp wings angled back and flicking like a snipe's. 
This was my first peregrine. I've seen many since then, but none has excelled it for speed and fire of spirit. How about that? Love it, Sam. Makes Brilliant. me want to go out peregrine hunting on Dartmoor. I might well do that later no, on this afternoon. No, you can't go out and hunt. And not hunting, I mean for looking for one, James. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, OK. Well, that's fine. I was going to say, otherwise that would be disastrous. <laughs> that was excellent, Sam, and I'm very glad that you're not going out to kill uh, Peregrine Falcon. That's uh, very good. I'd be very upset. Um, now, to end, uh, I just wanted to return to our angel atop a Christmas tree, uh, which has its own history, uh, would you believe? Um, we've talked about the way in which angels are, of course... They're messengers. They are associated with appearing in the sky over Bethlehem, um, you know, telling the great news of Jesus's birth. Uh, but also they there is they then get put on Christmas trees. And there is a history of that. And I think you you talked a little bit about the tradition of Christmas trees, uh, which are pagan symbols with evergreen trees being being, you know, being used at, at in the winter months. Um, we then have the the decision uh, that December the twenty fifth is the date of Christ's birth, uh, which is uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, decides on that. Uh, and then throughout the medieval period, we have Christians decorating what are known as paradise trees, uh, and these trees are thought to symbolise the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Now, one of the first records that we have of people decorating trees at Christmas uh, comes from the early 16th century in Latvia uh, when uh, people decorated fir trees with with other flowers uh, such as roses uh, and the tradition uh, grows and you tend to find uh, trees being used in churches in, in homes uh, often in in town squares, in marketplaces, and being decorated with with all sorts of things, uh, often with with you know things like uh, natural natural materials, so things like fruit and nuts and flowers and berries and those types of things. Um, the Christians then uh, then start using angels uh, to sort of put uh, on on top of their trees. Uh, sometimes they they'd also use a star. Um, now, part of them doing this is actually to scare evil spirits away from their homes. Um, and at first, the ones that they make are are sort of home, they're homemade. Uh, sometimes they're woven out of materials like straw. In the, uh, in the 19th century uh, in Germany, um, you see glass ornaments being made. So glass blowers. Uh, making making ornaments and then in the industrial revolution uh, we have the mass production of of christmas ornaments uh, for the first time and so you know as with the our sort of traditional understanding of the sort of victorian christmas is the importation of the christmas tree into uh, britain with with prince albert uh, and and then the sort of um, the manufacture and invention of christmas and so christmas ornaments get put 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 on there and so this idea of tree toppers is actually is something that that grows from that period so this is in other words a decorative ornament that was placed 
at the top of the Christmas tree. And often it is it's angels, uh, but it could also be fairies. It could even be Father Christmases. Uh, it could be crosses. It could be stars. In fact, we decorated our Christmas tree uh, yesterday evening. Uh, we do not have a fairy or a, or an angel atop the tree. We have a star this year. Uh, it is an eight-foot tree. It is enormous. Uh, and I had to stand on a ladder in order to put it up there. And it's looking all wonky. Um, but I, to end with, I'll just read you uh, a little uh, description of a, a decorated Danish Christmas tree uh, that appears in a short story by Hans Christian Andersen. And it's a short story called The Fir Tree. The fir tree dates from 1845. So I'll just read, read this here. On one branch there hung little nets cut out of coloured paper and each net was filled with sugar plums and among other black... And among the other boughs gilded apples and walnuts were suspended looking as though they had grown there and little blue and white tappers were placed among the leaves dolls that looked for all the world like men the tree had never beheld such before, was seen among the foliage, and at the very top a large star of gold tinsel was fixed. So not wings, not an angel, but in fact a star. So there we are, Sam. Uh, Loved it. The, the absence the of Christmas, wings. Jones. The absence of wings and the Christmas tree topper. Good. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed that, guys. We are going to come back with a uh, part two of um, this wonderful investigation into the history of wings. I've got so much really exciting stuff I want to tell you about. Um, but we've gone all over the place today, haven't we, James? We started off with a bit of Christian history and how and why angels became popular and then how that popularity changed. And that allowed me to talk about the amazing history of peregrine falcons that we ended with a bit of, a bit of wings and Christmas trees. Um, more to come, much more to come. If you want to keep in touch with us, do follow us on social media. I'm on at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you like maritime and naval history, which I hope you all do, please check out my new podcast, The Mariner's Mirror Podcast. And you can follow me on at James Daybell and you can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. You can also find out everything that we have been up to over the last few years on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com and... Should you be looking for Christmas stocking fillers, we are selling signed books from that said same website, aren't we, Sam? Absolutely, and if you want a little Christmas treat, please leave us a review and a rating on iTunes and we will read out your review in the coming episodes on the run-up to Christmas. Thank you all very much, guys, for listening. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Take care, guys. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 